And I just realized my microphone was muted. <laughs> let, me, let me start over. Sorry, everybody. At least I noticed quickly this time. We've had times where I just go on and on. Um, so welcome to the Friday live stream. This is 20 questions, and we're going to be taking your questions, I am, from the live chat to try to give you a biblical answer to the best of my ability, because this ministry is called Bible Thinker, right? And the focus of this ministry is helping you learn to think biblically about everything. And that, to me, is a worthy goal, and it is something that is achievable. It is achievable as we just slow down and we process what we're thinking about with scripture in mind. Let's take our first question today, and this comes from Brandy, who asks, someone recently told me to always, quote, apply the blood of Jesus over my family, my home, myself, and everything that belongs to me before I pray. Since there is spiritual warfare going on, have you heard of this? What are your thoughts? Thank you for all you do. You're very welcome, Brandy. It's it's my privilege and honor to get to do it. Um, <clears throat> what do I think of this? Um, I think that um, that it's that it's weird, but let me tell you why it's weird. And I I would even go so far as to say it's unbiblical. Let me tell you why though. If anybody's you've maybe you've been doing this, you've been like saying. Um, you know, before you pray each day, you get up in the morning and you say, I, I just apply the blood of Jesus to my family and my friends and my home and my coworkers and you, all that. I am not trying to insult you. I'm not, I'm not saying your motives are wrong. I'm saying your practice is not biblical. So I'm hoping you hear me on this. Um, <clears throat> here's, here's several issues. One is the terminology. Um, biblically speaking, the terminology, the blood of Jesus and the concept of applying the blood of Jesus, this is about salvation. And you can't give someone else salvation. Let's look at a verse here. Um, let's go to First uh, John. And it does mention the blood of Jesus. Here, I've got it on your screen. It's even highlighted for you. It says, um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when you have the blood of Jesus in, you know, applied to your life, it means you're saved. This is like what it means. It means that I'm saved. I have, have been forgiven of my sins. I've been washed by the blood of Christ. This comes from Old Testament terminology about sacrifices, how a sacrifice is offered and the blood of that sacrifice representing the life that was given is the thing that does away, deals with sin, cleanses the person from sin. And so applying the blood of Jesus was never about a physical application, obviously. It's all about when I trust in Christ, his sacrifice, his life, it is applied to me so that I am forgiven. So the terminology of I'm going to, I'm applying the blood of Jesus. Like, why can't I just say, I just apply the blood of Jesus to every atheist in the world. And now they're all saved. But because this kind of kicks against the very nature of the gospel to say that, because it's about faith, not just you forcing it on somebody else. Um, another issue with it is it kind of strikes almost like of, of, of magic, um, so in the uh, in the first century, magic just similar to today, people who want to actually not just goofy like uh, stuff on stage or stuff where people are <clears throat> pretending um, to do magic, everybody knows it's fake or just like for entertainment purposes. But I'm talking about like actual people who are trying to do magic for real, at least attempting to. They often think that special phrases have a special impact on the word on the world. And if you say certain words in certain orders, it has a magical effect on the world. And this invades the church in many ways. You hear you hear um, pastors saying things like, well, our words have power. There's power in words. And these things are sort of true, right? But they're not true in that sense. And so when I say things like I, I apply, I mean, 
doesn't it fit to just go, I magically apply the blood of Jesus to my family, friends, and home, and cats and dogs, and everything in my life, and then you and then you think, okay, that defeated the enemy's strongholds for the day. It's like, we're moving into the realm of magic here. Special magical phrases to have an impact on the world. I think that that's a real problem uh, as a Christian. I don't want to be stepping into that realm. It's not biblical. We never see anybody in scripture applying the blood of Jesus to somebody other than just simply, and nobody even says, I apply the blood of Jesus. They just they just trust in Christ and then the the, the blood of Jesus cleanses them. That This is just, it's just a faith thing. So I have a general concern, and this, this applies so well to the overall ministry that I do, learning to think biblically about things. I have a general concern, as we're about to go to your guys' questions, about believers having practices in our lives. And this is a concern for myself too, that I'll have a regular practice in my life that I feel is very Christian. But when I look at scripture, it's not there. That concerns me. I don't want to do that. It doesn't mean you can't have those practices. What it means is you shouldn't say that that's part of Christianity. Like you could just have things you do. You just do for fun. They're not, they're not Christian, so to speak, but they're not, they're not, you know, violating Christian principles in some sense. Okay. But but I don't want to say something's Christian. Like I used to think that the order of service at my church was was something that every church should do. And if I went to another church, and this is when I was very young, right? If I went to another church and they just like didn't, let's say they didn't have a, a time of worship the way we do. I might think, well, that's not right because it wasn't familiar to me. It had nothing to do with scripture. So this is one of those things. Um, we want to set aside that stuff as much as possible. I think as Christians, at least set it into a category of this is my tradition. This is not scripture. I'm going to let scripture trump this tradition if if necessary. And in this case, I think it's necessary. So I hope that answers your question, Brandy. We'll go to number two. This is that one Christian who asks, how should we explain 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25? I had somebody bring it up to me and was unsure of how to answer them. On the surface, it seems problematic. What can I say to them? Thanks. Um, I, okay, actually, I might know which, which passage this is. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Yeah, this is um this is about the the she bear. <laughs> okay, all right. Let me let me read it to you guys. Here it is on your screen. Um, this is about uh okay. I'll back up just a little bit. Um, Elisha, right? He's sort of demonstrating through doing miracles that that God's power is upon him, like you know, like it was on Elijah. Um, verse nineteen it says, "Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is is pleasant." As my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, bring, uh, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Okay. He does a miracle. Um, and then verse 23, uh, after this miracle, it, which does happen, it says he went up there from there to Bethel. He went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. That's interesting. <laughs> they're, they're just making fun of him. Um, now, what I want us to understand, well, let me back up. I'll explain the context after I read the next couple of verses. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears, she bears here, came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Now, it doesn't say there were only 42, but 42 get mauled. Uh, then he went from there to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. So um, there's several things to be asked about this passage, but let me just acknowledge a few things right off the cuff so we know the context. These guys are mocking a prophet and they're mocking him being a prophet. So he's a representative of God amongst a pretty rebellious group of people called the Israelites. And they're mocking him 
in his prophetic role. They're not just making fun of him for being bald. They're, when they say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, this has connotations, religious connotations. Even the phrase go up, right, as opposed to saying go down or something like that, There's this is another study you'd have to do. Um, I know uh, one scholar, James Bijan, did, did a whole little piece on this, on the phrase that go up in this passage, and I thought it was a pretty interesting thing that he drew out. So, um, it's a, it's a religious mockery of a prophet of God. What they're doing is they're, they're mocking Yahweh's messenger, right? They're mocking God's messenger. These youths are mocking God. So he, so it makes sense that he, he pronounces a curse upon them and their people of Israel in Israel mocking God's messenger. So judgment comes upon them. This is part of their, they're into the covenant. This is what happens. You obey blessings, you disobey curses. Moxie's debating whether she's going to join us for the stream or not. She's thinking about it. And there she is. Hold on. I'll show you, I'll show you my cat and then I'll explain to you. The, wow, they were really zoomed in. <laughs> There's her back. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll come back to her when she figures out how she wants to sit. Um, but here's the here's the dilemma on this passage. It's really what people focus on is youths, the term youths. And I have done word studies on this, so I'm not speaking just off the top of my head here. Um, this term can apply to children, and it can apply to other people who are seen as immature. Right, where it's kind of a derogatory sin, like you go, look at this kid, but you're not, he's not a kid, but you call him a kid because you're, it's derogatory, you're saying he's immature. This is how, um, uh, uh, who is it? Um, Solomon is referenced in, I think it's First Kings. I think it's, I think it's First Kings. How Solomon is referenced as he is a youth, he is a child, but he's ordained as the king, right? And <clears throat> I think it's David actually is the one who calls him this. So we have here in the same composition, first and second Kings is really one book. It's just separated because of size. It wouldn't fit on one scroll, right? Um, we have the same word being used of an adult. Ah, and so you find out this isn't as some atheists would, I've, I've heard online atheists take this passage. It's not a group of like seven-year-olds mocking, uh, mocking the prophet because he's bald and they're giggling at him. Rather, this is a, a group of immature individuals, probably more older males, 19, 25, they're older males and they're mocking him because they're opposed to the prophet of God. There's religious reasons for this. So he pronounces a curse on them. <clears throat> so it all hangs on the, de the definition of this word use. And it is definitely used in ways, um, to suggest older than just a little kid and it used even in the same composition of Kings, I believe for that purpose. Um, or maybe it was second Samuel. I think it was Kings. Also, in addition to this, um, we have context that suggests these people are older. It's not really, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think that there is a gang of 40 plus seven-year-olds running around in Israel mocking prophets. Like that's not likely. What's much more likely is that it's, it's literally a gang of older people who have religious opposition to Elisha. And that's why they're mocking him, right? Seven-year-olds don't generally have like these strong religious opinions. <laughs> so, all right. Um, I'll go to the next question here and I'm going to move kind of quick today, <clears throat> but here we are. John Doe says, my parents think Christians shouldn't unionize or strike and should just do what they're told or go elsewhere, citing the vineyard parable. But that sounds crazy to me. What is the Christian attitude to workplace struggles? Um, so, I mean, our general attitude, my short answer to this, John, is my general attitude towards workplace struggles is I do have an attitude of submission. That is my general attitude. And most often that's what applies. But does that mean a Christian cannot stand up for their rights or organize, right? A, a right-based like opposition 
to oppression. Uh, no, it does not. It doesn't mean that at all. So an example of this is Paul, who is told to submit to the governing authorities, right? But Paul, in the book of Acts, he appeals to Caesar. That's an interesting thing there. In the book of Acts, Paul appeals to Caesar. You, you can't you can't just cry. You know what? She wants this chair. I'm, forgive me, you guys. I'm sorry for interrupting myself on the stream here. My cat demands that she sits in this exact chair, and today I, I didn't. I can't. I can't. Go away. All right. Sorry, I should have just given her the chair. Next week I will. Um, <clears throat> so Paul's an example of somebody who, if he would just have a rule of submit no matter what, no matter what, then he would just yield to the rulings against him. But instead he appeals to Caesar. So he pushes back because within the government that he's submitting to, he has rights he can stand up for. That's what I'm talking about. There are rights you can stand up for. So unionizing, I think that that's entirely appropriate if the activities of the union are godly. And if the union is ungodly, you, you can't, you can't, <laughs> if the union's ungodly, then there's, there's not much you can do to be involved with them. So the question is not, should we unionize or not? It's, is this union going to be godly or am I throwing myself in with ungodly things? Uh, old unions in New York that were like run by the mob, like obviously that's a bad thing. Um, I, and another way to look at this is to look at the actual teachings um, in Ephesians 5 um, that talks about... Um, uh, you, you cat. It talks about, um, servants and masters. Okay. Let's read it. <clears throat> Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Okay. Here's the way in which we're to be obedient, right? Um, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. So I have respect and honor to Christ. I see myself obeying them as a way of obeying God. That's that fear and trembling. I realize it's bigger than just my job. I'm obeying the Lord by obeying them, right? In sincerity of heart as to Christ. Um, the nice thing about saying you obey as to Christ is that if someone asks you to do something Christ doesn't want you to do, you say no, because that's not as to Christ. So there can be a godly rebellion in that sense, <clears throat> in a godly way. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Okay, so you're not just doing it for them to look at. As bond servants of Christ, doing <clears throat> the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men. So <clears throat> there's nothing here that suggests that in every scenario you always obey, no matter how wicked they are. Um, no, you can organize if it's godly, if it's not violating these things. So there can be such thing as a good union. You're, you, you've got to, just give me a second. Uh-huh. My cat runs the house. We're live. <laughs> I'm just gonna leave the counter. No, I, I gotta pick it up for Sarah. All right, all right, just give me a second, everybody. This is the worst. I will never sit in her chair again. I don't know how to untangle it. You caused this to happen. So I'm gonna go to the next question. <laughs> As I try to, as I try to write the wrong here. How is this tangled? Okay, I'm just going to have to not do the counter because Moxie's ruining my life. And on top of everything, I only got like a tiny bit of sleep last night because I woke up with a massive headache. <sighs> What's our next question? All right, this is question number three. John Doe, um, 
No, that was four. Okay, four. Burga, Burga says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Any thoughts on using Matthew 13, 33 to prove that people inside the faithful church will try to destroy it, saying that yeast is bad and the woman Jesus referred to is the same in Revelation? All right, let's go to Matthew 13, 33 together. And I promise we will, uh, we will focus on the actual, the actual Bible. All right. <clears throat> Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. Like, so this is a one verse parable. It's actually bite sized. It's good for our Q&A to discuss it. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. Here's the conclusion that some people are offering. Um, Burga says they want to use this verse to prove that people inside the faithful church will try to destroy it. The problem with this <laughs> is that this, this, this parable right here, this one verse, doesn't give us any details about the leaven trying to destroy anything. Does it? Okay, so <clears throat> whatever effect the leaven is having on the on the meal on the on the bread, you know, the dough, it doesn't tell you. It just says that the leaven goes in and spreads throughout. the The, the whole parable just says that the leaven goes in and it spreads throughout. It's possible that the kingdom of heaven, in this sense, the leaven is a bad thing. In which case, we're going to see um, if it's if it's negative, then we're seeing that inside the kingdom Jesus is establishing, there will be an invasion of ungodliness spreading throughout. Doesn't say it will destroy anything, but it says it'll be there, present. It'll have a presence. If, on the other hand, you take the leaven to be positive in this particular parable, because leaven isn't exactly considered bad in every scenario. It's not. Like, sometimes it is. Leaven is sometimes bad. It's not in every scenario. If it's positive, then I would be looking at this as Jesus is describing the, the sort of secret nature of the kingdom. Um, what I mean by that is his kingdom's not going to be an earthly government where he comes with a sword and he rules visibly like on the earth with a, with a governmental force, but instead his kingdom's going to be in the lives of individuals. And, and Christianity will spread from person to person as the faith is, of Christ is spread. And so that in that sense, and that's kind of how I, I lean to take this parable, that this is a positive thing. This is um, the gospel goes out into the world and it just invades every place and every culture. It spreads universally around the world. And so that's how I take it. Um, but <clears throat> it doesn't say anything specifically about a negative effect or a positive effect. It only says the leaven spreads throughout. It was all leavened. Maybe maybe my, my, my thoughts on that are incorrect, but I would say we don't want to go beyond what's written there. All right, let's go to the next question, um, which would be number... Five, please explain John 11, verses 25 and 26, how the first person became dead, but believed, and the second person, being a believer, never dies. Thanks. All right, John chapter 11. Here we go. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives, in, uh, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Okay, she says, yes, Lord. Now, let me put this in its context so that we don't misunderstand Jesus, what he's saying here. This is, this is the death of Lazarus. Jesus says this in the middle of a conversation with Lazarus's sister. And so Lazarus has died. He's been dead for four days and Jesus shows up and she's 
grieving towards Jesus. He shows up and uh, she says to Jesus, Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So her concern is I have a brother who's physically dead. He died. If you had been here, he wouldn't have. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's an interesting thing that she says there. Uh, Jesus said, your brother will rise again. This is like, uh, I don't want to say it's just a typical thing, but it's a comforting type of thing people say at a funeral. Hey, you'll see them again. I know I'll see them again one day. They will, But it's interesting because Jesus' focus isn't just you will see him in heaven, but he will rise again. And I think uh, as a side note, you guys, the Christian focus is not just going to heaven. It's it's about the resurrection and the new life that we have, the eternal physical even, different, different bodies, but physical life that we live, different kinds of bodies. Um, side note. <clears throat> then Martha says in response, hey, your brother's going to rise again. She goes, I know that he'll rise again, rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she's thinking Jesus is talking about like a distant future time. Jesus now uses this moment and he's been planning this. We know because he told his disciples that this moment was going to be something to help them believe in him um, because he was anticipating raising Lazarus. So she says, oh, I know he'll die. He'll rise again in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, imagine this, Jesus saying this, if, if he's not God with us, what a, what a statement to make. I'm the resurrection and the life. Like either it's hugely arrogant or it's just true. There's no real middle ground there, but he is the resurrection and the life. And that's because our resurrection is through him. Um, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Okay, so there's gonna, there's a death, but you're going to live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, now let me, let me now answer your question after all that context. <clears throat> you're like, hey, there's like two people here. The first person, they became dead, but believed. And the second person being a believer never dies. Like, how does this work? I think this might be describing the same person. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Lazarus is, he died, but he's going to live again. And he's only an example of you, you and me, we believe in Christ. And most people who've believed in Jesus throughout history have died, yet they will live. There's a future life for them. And guess what? And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You could take this one of two ways. Either <clears throat> um, there's a sense in which I never die because even this, even though this body dies, I go to be with Christ. So I have, I haven't really died in the, in the true consequences of death. I'm, I'm not going to feel. So I, so in that sense, I never die or you could view it another way. And the other way would potentially be, um, <clears throat> that it's a, it's verse 25 and 26 are describing the same person. You believe in Jesus, you die, yet you will live. So there's a resurrection coming. And when you when you resurrect, whoever lives, right? He shall live. That's a resurrection. Whoever lives, whoever's resurrected, they will never die. So yes, you're living a life that will die, but then you will be resurrected to a life that never dies. I hope that clarifies the verse for you. <clears throat> All right, we'll go to number six. This is from McBoo Blitzman, who says, what is your opinion on Christian YouTuber Steven Crowder? A lot of his content, while in the name of comedy and free speech, is quite vulgar and feels insensitive. Is his method biblical? Um, <clears throat> this might be a surprise to some of you guys, but I don't watch Steven Crowder. Uh, I, I think I've watched a couple of his videos over time, and I don't have the knowledge about his stuff to make to make an opinion, to like tell you all what I think about him in a way that wouldn't just be kind of like guessing and gossipy. So I'm just going to not talk about that. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm just going to pass that question because I don't I don't have a strong answer for you. Um, he's a Christian. That's great. Didn't even know that. Um, um, that's fantastic. If um, if his stuff is vulgar and insensitive, as you say, um, then that would mean that it would need it, it's it, you have to chew up the you know meat and spit out the bones <laughs> with it, and you wouldn't want to copy things that you think are unbiblical there. But I don't have a comment as far as what I my judgment upon his content. Yeah, sorry about that. That I don't have more to say. <clears throat> um, when it comes to telling you what to think about somebody else's teaching, somebody else's videos, somebody else's uh, ministry or or contribution to public media, that kind of thing, I want to be a little careful that I don't speak too quickly and especially condemn too quickly because it's very easy to do that. And it's a good way to make a bunch of viral videos, right? Like I just condemn everybody. When I do come out and say something about a person, it's because I've done research and spent time on it. So I won't be saying anything about that. All right, uh, number eight, Cheryl44 says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Thank you for your ministry. It's helped so much. I'm very, very happy to hear that, Cheryl. My question is about John 18.6. It's a really powerful moment, but did the other disciples not see it? All right, let's look at John 18, verse 6 together. Um. I'm going to back up a little bit because I want to give us the context. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is about to be taken to be crucified. This is, this is that long agonizing night. And then early before even the sun comes up, they, they, they snag him, they take him. And now then he's bound. He's brought before the high priest. He's brought before Pilate and eventually he's, he's crucified. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Okay, I'm going to point out a few things, because we're talking here about the differences between the Gospels. Jesus is going to, t- is going to do something miraculous, and the other Gospels don't record it, but John does. Okay, so let's talk about some of these similarities before we get to the difference. Uh, Jesus went forward to them. He's volunteering himself. That's consistent with the other Gospels, with the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus volunteers himself to go forward to the cross. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Um, They're looking for Jesus. They're obviously having some difficulty finding the real Jesus. That's actually consistent with the other Gospels where Judas kisses Jesus and this just demonstrates that there was a difficulty in finding, identifying the right person. Jesus said to them, I am he. And the word he is kind of added there in the English for clarity, but he says, ego eimi, I am in the Greek. And this connects to other statements of Jesus and John. It's like a deity thing. And <clears throat> Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I don't know how many of them drew back. Was it the the two that were closest? Was it 50 guys? Um, I don't know. You know, when people do like videos of this moment in the garden, um, if they include the, the, the stuff that John talks about here, you know, then how many do they have fall down? Is there a big sound effect when they fall? Um, did they, did they fall? Was it really miraculous that they fell or were they just intimidated by Jesus? Was somebody like he, he walked forward and he goes, I'm he and they fell. Um, it's, I mean, I would guess it was somewhat miraculous. There's a lot we don't know is what I'm saying. 
one of the things we do with studying the Bible is we acknowledge what we don't know so that we don't go beyond the text of Scripture. We don't add our own thoughts as though they're in the Bible. And all it says here is, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Um, we, we don't know a lot. Was there a wind? Was was it what, was it um, something else? <clears throat> were some of the people suddenly intimidated, realizing that they were just talking with, that's Jesus, and he's talking to them, and he was so bold, and he walked towards them. Um, we don't know. Now, the question you ask is this. Um, let's see. Um, John 18, 6. It's a really powerful moment, but did the other disciples not see it? Um, the, the reason why I think this is a question <clears throat> is because it's not recorded in the other, the other gospels, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so the, your thought, maybe they didn't see it. Maybe they were not aware that, that this moment had happened. But whatever John saw, Peter and James probably saw. Because in the garden, Peter, James, and John were, were the closest to Jesus while he's praying. He says, get up. You know, my, my betrayer has come. And at that moment, it seems as though everybody's present. So at least Peter, James, and John, probably whoever's in the garden with Jesus at that moment, they're present. They're right there. Because um, we even read in Mark that there's like a young man uh, who's unidentified, who's like, they try to grab this young man. So it seems that whoever's with Jesus in the garden there, they're at that moment, they're right there watching it. So why didn't, why don't they record it? I think from our perspective, we look at it like there was a miracle type moment with Jesus you didn't record. And we're like, why didn't you record it? But if we actually had the authors of the gospels here, they might laugh at us a little bit and say, you wait, you have no idea how many miracles we did not record or how many incredible things Jesus said we didn't tell you about. There's just way too much. So consider this. They're taking over three years of ministry of Jesus, active ministry, daily miracles, daily teachings, and they're cramming it into into books that with tiny short chapters, 15, 16, 21 chapters long, 24 chapters, I think is Luke. Is that right? I might have that wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and they're just cramming in massive periods of time into this tiny little space. There's tons of stuff they didn't record. We shouldn't assume they weren't aware of it. We should assume that they had a different reason for why they recorded what they did in the garden. Mark, Matthew, Luke, they tend to focus on Jesus's suffering in the garden. John seems to be focusing more on the power of Christ and the control of Christ. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do emphasize Jesus's authority and control in the garden as well. They do. They really do. They have specific things they do to include that. They just don't include the story of the people falling back. So um, there's, my, there's my answer on that. Um, yeah, they're different on purpose to have a different emphasis, but not, I do think they witnessed it. Yeah. Number nine. Is that right? Number nine. I'm a former cross dresser. This is an anonymous question. Anonymous question it says, I'm a former cross dresser, not transgender, but I don't feel any guilt or remorse for when I used to do it. Any advice on how to not just repent with my actions, but also repent with my mind and heart. Um, so the, the, the good news that I'd have for you is this, and this is something I tell myself too, is that it's actually pretty healthy when you have the sobriety of mind and biblical thinking, when you can repent of a behavior you don't even feel bad about. That's like a hell, like it's not good you don't feel bad about it, but it's healthy that you could say, I recognize that's wrong. For some reason, my conscience feels nothing, but I will still repent because I know it's wrong. This is healthy. As Christians, we just want to be able to do this. I know I'm wrong. I just don't feel it right now. Good that I'm not, I'm not beholden to my feelings. I'm able to do what God says because he says it and that's it. So I think this is like a great thing to do. 
um, how can you, you know, repent with your with your heart? I, I think you're repenting with your mind in a sense by just saying, I'm not going to do that. Um, but if you want like help sort of pulling the calluses off, I think that the, um, the biblical, t- in fact, I'm doing my study right now, my prep for a study on women in ministry and the, and the issue of men and women and the difference between men and women. I would recommend that you look up the scriptures that talk about the nature of male and female how in the beginning God made them male and female and this difference was on purpose. And in the law, there's actually there's actually teaching against cross-dressing in the law of Moses. Now we're not under the law, but I think the principle is Old and New Testament true that God wants male and female to be different. And so if you recognize that part of cross-dressing is sort of fighting against the uniqueness in which God made us male and female, like that's, that's part of the nature of cross-dressing is to kick against that, to sort of say to God, oh, it's arbitrary. Your design is purely arbitrary. I'm going to redesign things myself. I think that that is um, an affront to the way God made us. So that's something that might help pull that callus off to say, yeah, I'm actually, it's kind of an affront. It doesn't mean that being manly means being like, <clears throat> um, being like a, a jerk or, or being, you know, like I, I can punch walls or something like that. But, but it does mean that, that male and female are different and that's intentional and it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. This is how babies are made, you know? So, um, I hope that that helps. Just know this, even if those calluses never come off and you never feel bad, you can still acknowledge it. You can still repent of it, even if those emotions aren't all there. And one of the ways I think in the old days they got over this, that we have a harder time now is they would make actions of repentance. We don't do this now, but actions of repentance back in the day were things like tearing your clothes, putting ashes on your head, and deliberately crying. Like deliberately crying. Now that might sound weird, but I think that there might be at least some principle there that we could borrow from and say, hey, maybe... Maybe if I, if my heart's not repentant, my, my heart doesn't feel bad about it, but I know it was wrong. Maybe I should have like, I should fast for today. And throughout the day, I will, I will continue to say, Lord, I, I'm sorry about that. I'm not going to do fun things, enjoyable, laughy things today. Today, I'm going to let be a sober day so that I can be repentive over those things. Um, so that I can sort of bring my heart into alignment with God. That is just my advice, <clears throat> my counsel, my two cents. Consider it, think about it, whether you will follow through with it or not, it's up to you. Um, <clears throat> Let's go to the next question. Lauren Amstas, Amstutz. And by the way, in case you guys are wondering, yeah, she's in my, her chair. Yeah, there you go. You big, you big weasel. <sighs> she just runs everything, apparently. <laughs> she's gotten to the point where she will come up, just recently, the past like two weeks, so she'll come up and I'll be sitting, wherever I'm sitting, she'll just meow at me to get up and move so she can sit there. And... Uh, I'm a pushover, so I, I get up and move because I like my cat. <laughs> All right. Um, see, and some will think, Mom, Mike, that's not manly. Well, like, I just don't think you know what it means to be manly. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, da, 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 da. Lauren Amstutz says, my friend says the definition of marriage evolved over time, and now it's a legal contract. In biblical times, she claims it was a social transfer of care. Thus, her living with her boyfriend unmarried is biblical. Thoughts? Um, let's look at, you know how Jesus answered a question about marriage? Um, he actually quoted the Old Testament Genesis. So, 
um, the concept of marriage evolves over time. That is human's concept of marriage. We have an evolving concept of marriage, but I'm going to suggest that underneath that, more important than that, is God's concept of marriage. See, if if it's purely human, you know, purely a human institution, marriage, then it's fine if it evolves over time, right? What, what polygamy or whatever? Like, what's the point? It just evolves over time. But if it's God's design, if it's according to His plan, then all of a sudden the evolution of human can be measured against something. We can take this evolving human understanding of marriage and compare it to something that God created to say it's accurate or inaccurate. There's an actual truth to it. So um, let me take you to the passage here. And um, put it on your screen as well. Oh. Okay, <clears throat> here's, here's Jesus' answer when he was asked about divorce. He goes to Genesis to establish what? A constant by which man's customs can be measured against. And so here, Genesis 2, um, Adam goes to sleep and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. But that's not the whole story. That, 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 you could think that that phrase is, as your friend put it, a transfer of care, right? Except for two reasons that's a problem. One, the man leaves his father and mother, right? And, and, if, and if in their society they're thinking that the man is the one who's the provider, well, they would describe it as the woman leaving her father and mother, the man shall leave his father and mother. It's about a familial association. My, my allegiance, my family association was with you, mom and dad. Now my family association is with, this, is with my, my wife. And she takes precedence over my parents at that point, which is important. Um, so the man leaves his father and mother and is hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this goes way beyond transfer of care. This is about joining of union, people two becoming one. So this, this is what marriage is. Marriage is, is two becoming one. And what Jesus said is what God has joined together, let not man separate. So for um, your friend who has said um, that living with her boyfriend is totally cool. She's unmarried, but it's totally cool. There's no biblical support for that. It's becoming a super popular thing amongst Christians right now. Living together, sleeping together, just messing around. What I'm going to suggest is you, if, you, if that's you, you're getting your cues from this evolving moral like opinion of marriage from culture, it goes up and down and all over the place. You're not listening to the state, the the um, static, unchanging teaching of God's word. Marriage is sacred and holy, and to fool around with just sleeping with somebody and just moving in and <clears throat> what you have with a, living with your boyfriend and sleeping with them, what you have is all of the um, risk of marriage without any of the security of marriage. That's what you've got: the risk without the security. Because the one thing you don't have is a life commitment to each other. No, but you're doing everything else. And it's sad. This is not because Christians think that, that sex is bad. It's because it's sacred. It's because it's so wonderful, because it's so important that it is protected within the, within the bounds and the binding of marriage. God's version of marriage doesn't change. Ours does, but we're just wrong a lot of the time. Michael Hadley says, does Romans 7.24, this is question number 11, suggest that sin is in our flesh 
Is this the reason why some people may be predisposed to certain sinful behavior behaviors? Romans 7.24. Um, sort of. Let me try to answer this question to the, to the best of my ability here. <clears throat> Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law with my mind, with my but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. One thing I think I want us to understand is that when Paul says flesh, he doesn't just mean physical body. He uses the term flesh, and there's actually been a lot written on this. Paul uses the term flesh to talk about something a little different than just your physical body because he doesn't think body equals bad. And when he says flesh, he's talking about something horrible and bad. When he says flesh, he's talking about your old earthly nature, right? Whereas spirit sort of relates to heaven, flesh sort of relates to earth. He's talking about your worldly nature. And um, in that sense, I mean that, uh, like, say, cutting off my arm doesn't get rid of some of my sin. <laughs> that's what I'm suggesting here. Um, that's not actually how it works, even though some people have confusedly misunderstood Jesus to, to do that. Um, so the... Um, yeah, is sin in our flesh? That's just not how Paul's using the term sarx in the Greek. He's just using it in a very specialized sense. You just have to read Paul over and over again as he talks about flesh. But then he goes on and he talks about food and how you should thank God for your food and you're eating it and you're enjoying it. But if flesh was bad, eating itself would be a problem, right? You're gratifying the flesh. Like, I'm enjoying my food. And he goes, oh, you give thanks to God, go and enjoy it. Because he doesn't mean physical body. He means something deeper than that. That being said... You say, hey, um, is this the reason why some people may be predisposed to certain sinful behaviors? I, I don't think I can, I don't think the two are related to each other. Although, obviously, some people are predisposed towards certain sins. Or at least, how about we put it this way? Some people are disposed towards certain sins. It's a little difficult to suggest whether they were predisposed or whether they made decisions that, that angled them that way. So Ephesians talks about the old person, the old man as it says in, say, New King James, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And the part that always stands out to me in that verse is that it grows corrupt. That old sin nature becomes more, it doesn't, isn't just corrupt, it's getting increasingly corrupt. So a little kid who lies at a young age and then who lies more is growing more corrupt. And then by the time they become like a regular habitual liar, you know, a little bit older, we might think they're predisposed, but in reality, maybe it was that they they're predisposed to lie or they look like they're predisposed because they've lied so much. I'm suggesting that a lot of us who are, who have, you know, we're, we're entrenched in sin. We are not entrenched in sin because it's like a special wickedness that we were born with. Although we're all born with wickedness. Don't get me wrong. We're all born with sin nature, but rather that specific sin could also be explained as, well, you just keep doing it over and over. So it keeps getting worse. By saying, oh, but I'm predisposed to it. That can take away some of the personal responsibility. And that, that's a concern of mine because we're always forever. As, as humans, me too, my tendency is to want to take away my personal responsibility for my actions. And if I have religious reasons for doing that, then I can use those and feel better about my issues and be like, I'm just, I'm just born this way. Well, we are born sinful but does that mean that everything I do is just because I'm predisposed that way? No, I got at some point I gotta acknowledge there's a growing corrupt, and I fed this thing. It's a monster, but I also fed it. I, uh, I hope that gives you some clarity. I'll pretend to click the button and I'll go to question number twelve. Ad Chan says, 
Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22, 13. Does this mean God the Son is finite? Is he saying Jesus, fully man, is finite? Oh, this is, I love questions like this. Partly because they're about the essential nature of Christ and also partly because I think they're easy once you once you see the verses in context. Okay, so here we are, Revelation twenty two thirteen. Jesus is clearly speaking here at the end of Revelation, right? Uh, behold, I'm coming soon. He's the one who's coming soon. The whole theme at the end of Revelation is about even so come Lord Jesus, right? He's the one coming to bring my recompense. And verse 13, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Does that mean Jesus himself has a beginning and that Jesus himself has an end? Well, that would be a problem for other verses, right? Which say things like, in the beginning was the word, not began the word. The word. He, he just was in the beginning and that everything that was created was created through him, John 1. So if everything that had a beginning, all created things had a beginning. If everything that had a beginning was made through him, then he must not have begun because that would be a logical contradiction. But there's another way to look at this, and it's to look at earlier in Revelation, that phrase, Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, beginning of the end. Look at, look at who says it here. In verse 8 of chapter 1, Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Ah, so the, alpha, the phrase Alpha and Omega doesn't mean he has a beginning because God himself doesn't have a beginning. Jesus using the phrase later on is only an affirmation that he's the same God in chapter one who declared, I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. And then Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. I'm the Alpha and the Omega because Jesus is God. It's only an affirmation of the deity of Christ. So why does it say beginning and end? So why does it say Alpha Omega? Um, in the Greek alphabet, right? Alpha is the first letter. It's like our letter A. Omega is the last letter. It's like in English, the letter Z. I am the A and the Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am, I am the 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 all. <laughs> like he's he's the ultimate. He is the one who is and who was and who was is to come and all that. So it's just a, a claim about the supremacy of Christ, that he's before creation, that he exists sort of like holding all of creation together. Um, it's entirely about the deity of Jesus. So yeah, Revelation twenty two verse thirteen should be paired with Revelation one verse eight because it's a revelation of who Jesus is. He is God. I love that question. All right, go to Memento Hermano, who says, why does God allow wicked people to persist and bring forth more generations that will most likely go to hell? Mostly go to hell, you say. Um, instead of bringing judgment on them and erasing their culture as soon as they go astray. So let me um, do a, my usual caveat here. Memento is to suggest that answering questions about why doesn't God, it puts me in precarious places because here I am actually trying to tell you God's motives and reasons for things. And unless I have clear scripture that tells me what God's motives and reasons are, I am liable to make something up based purely on my perceptions. So to give you an example of this, it'd be like asking a four-year-old why their parent does certain things. And then particularly asking them hard questions. Your mommy loves you, doesn't doesn't she? Yes, she does. Well, then why does she leave you every day for hours and hours? And she has other people take care of you while she's at work. I don't think your mommy really loves you. And if the four-year-old in that scenario was forced to either come up with a reason why mommy would leave them alone or 
give in to the idea that mommy just must not love them. I mean, maybe the four-year-old doesn't really understand money that well, right? Or doesn't understand the economy that well. There's concepts that are just beyond a four-year-old. And so what I'm going to suggest is a four-year-old compared to an adult is way smarter than me and you compared to God. There are things about him governing the universe and ruling creation that are beyond our minds. This is not a um, foolish appeal to mystery. God works in mysterious ways. No, no, no. It, it's, it's an appeal to humility. I, I have to just recognize I can't tell God his business because I don't know God's business. And the number of people who shake their fist at God because they think you should have done this, you should have done that. I want them to read the end of Job where Job's like, I was a fool for saying these things. And God just tells him like, Job, were you there when I made the world? Were you, were you there? You don't know what you're talking about. And how many parents have like been frustrated thinking, I wish I could just get my kid to understand. They're just a dumb little kid sometimes. Like just, you'll know when you grow up and the kid's all frustrated. You compared to God, like you just got to trust him. Okay. He's God. He earns and deserves your trust. If you can't explain his actions, that's okay. But to then conclude that he's wrong is, is way beyond our intellect and our life experience. Um, so let me then try to answer the question to the best of my ability. All that being said, um, I do see multiple times where God has done this in the scriptures, right? In the flood, he wipes them out, all the wicked, wipe them out. The idea is that, hey, by having a godly family restart the world, things will, things will go better. But the flood demonstrates that that's not the case because people just go astray all over again. Then God does what? He starts his own nation where he gives them his own laws, the Jewish people. And what do they do? They go astray, right? The, the, the message of the scripture would be that no matter what you do, humans are going to sin and they're going to do their own thing. And God, he is not going to fix things by picking the best godly family and resetting everything. Like it just won't work. What I'm suggesting is the solution that you had of um, why not just bring judgment on them early, erase their culture as soon as they go astray is that there is no culture that would last a generation even if that was God's standard, if, if God did that. So God is long-suffering, and this is where I can give you scripture. Scripture tells us God is long-suffering. The reason why he hasn't brought judgment yet is that he's not willing and he should perish, but that all should come to ever, everlasting life. Because in the midst of wicked cultures and people sinning in the world, even today, just from the time the sun went up until now, there have been probably thousands, I don't know how many people around the world, who have given their hearts to Christ today who put their faith in Jesus today. And so God's delaying judgment, letting more and more people get saved. And those who live sinfully and choose to reject Christ, that's their choice. Doesn't mean it's not sad. Doesn't mean it doesn't grieve us, but it's not unjust for God to allow people to make those choices. So there's my best attempt to give that answer with hopefully some humility and courage as well. Um, Verse, uh, verse 14, sorry. Question number 14. This is me total lack of sleep today and uh, being being um, upstaged by my cat. She's destroying everything in, in my in my uh, live stream. So hopefully you guys are getting benefits still from my uh, sleep depraved brain. Yeah, I said that. Sleep depraved. All right, 14. Anonymous question. Hello, how do you stop doubting that God exists or Christianity is the true religion out of many, especially Islam. Sometimes my faith wanders from belief to unbelief. Any tips? Thank you. Yeah, I got some tips for you. Um, so one of the things that I, that I recommend when I encounter people that have lots and lots of doubts, well, let me put it this way. Um, there's different kinds of doubts. Okay. There's doubts that are based on in, in like intellectual questions 
like genuine questions where you're like, if I could get the answer to this, I think that I would be okay. Like my doubt would genuinely go away. I just have this thing that's this one question. It's causing me doubt. If I could get it to go away, I'd be fine. Then there are people who it's the fear and you could call it intellectual if you want, but it's the fear of questions that is causing doubt. And one of the ways you can know the difference is, and I'll ask people this, and I'd ask you this too, is write down your top one, two, or three issues. Top has to be, these are the most important issues. And if these issues were resolved, one, two, or three, if those could be answered for me, I would be fine. I would be strengthened, I would have confidence, and I wouldn't be doubting. And if you can't do that, if you're like, oh, I can't write it out three, it's, it's more like three million. It's like every single thing. And, and now you have like this amorphous blob of ever objecting to God in every possible way. What I'm going to suggest is if you feel, and I understand feeling that way, but if you feel that way, it's not about intellectual issues here. It's about an attitude. It's about a general feeling. And giving an intellectual answer in one case probably won't help your blob problem because <laughs> that blob thing is about an attitude. And that's why everything's an objection to Christianity. Because it's the glasses you're wearing. It's not the actual situation around you. So if that's the situation, I recommend cry out to God. Pray, humble yourself, seek the Lord. Pray that God will help you in those situations. If there's ongoing sin in your life, repent of that sin. Like these are, You need spiritual answers to these issues. If, on the other hand, you say especially Islam. Let's say your, your issue is Islam. Then I recommend you write down one or two major issues with Islam, not 30, one or two. Let's say your, your, your one issue is maybe Muhammad was a real prophet from God. That's a significant issue because if he was, then, then we should all be Muslim. Um, so you could chase that down and you could look at Muhammad. You could look at his false prophecies. You could look at how his teachings are actually against the Old Testament and New Testament and God's not going to contradict himself. Right. You could say, well, but they, they say the Bible's been corrupted. So then do I have a video series on has the Bible been corrupted? I have like three videos that demonstrate that the New Testament has not been changed and altered and corrupted like Muslims would claim because they have to claim it's been corrupted because it disagrees with their teachings so much. So um, my point is you pick one or two of those issues, my anonymous friend, and you actually chase them down slowly. Give yourself a week, a month, six months to work through this problem slowly and carefully. Find the best resources you can that help defend the Christian faith from that perspective. I have lots of videos that I've done my best job on this. You can check out. You go to BibleThinker.org, type in the issue, and our search engine should pop it up for you. And I hope that that helps. Again, you find one, two, three issues you can chase down, chase them down. If you have a blob, that's a spiritual time to get on your knees, get on your face before the Lord, seek him, repent of sin, and realize that this is not an intellectual thing. There's something else going on. That's my thoughts for you. I hope they help. Uh, Jay Towles says, hey, Pastor Mike, <clears throat> why would the Roman soldiers try to give Jesus the wine and myrrh, which I understand to be a sedative? Wouldn't they want it to be as painful as possible? Um, the, this is the easy one to answer. Um, they wanted to do that to delay his death. So he's a dying man on the cross. You give him this and it keeps him on the cross longer. So it's, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a type of a sedative to dull the pain, but it is to do that in order to uh, elongate the life and increase the suffering of the person. Um, you could also do it just as a mercy. Maybe someone's suffering a lot and you want to offer them some mercy. I think that was offered, though, to increase the length of time somebody was going to suffer on the cross. Um, so, uh, yeah, 
that's my opinion about that. But, uh, but you could think of a couple different motives that make a lot of sense in that context. Number 16, Nirek says, could prayers from prayer books be considered as spells? Love your ministry and has helped me think more biblically. Thank you very much. Uh, Nirek, I think that's possible. I mean, it's just, and, and I say it's possible, not that it's true, just that it's possible. It depends on the prayer, you know? You have a prayer book and it's offering prayers. Read the prayer. Is it is this biblical? Can I honestly, genuinely say these things? Is Are they doctrinally sound? And if you can, and you and you don't say it in vain, and you don't say it like it's special words that have special effects, instead you say it like you're talking to God, then you're fine. But if perhaps you're saying a prayer like it's a ritual, oh, if I say these special words in my life, this or that, like, I mean, the way magic works in movies and TV shows, this is how it works, right? You say special phrases and then it like controls spiritual powers or something. That's silly, it's not biblical, right? Prayer is talking to God. And if I pray to God, like, well, God, I know if I ask you to bless me normally, it won't work. But if I say the prayer of so-and-so, the Jabez prayer, now you have to bless me because that that's the one that works. Like, this is silly. Like, could you imagine someone talking to you this way? They go, hey, Nirik, if I ask you for five bucks, I know you won't. But if I say, shim, shim, give me five dollars, shim, shim, now you have to. Like, you just, you'd laugh at them and you'd be insulted. And I think that God might feel that way. Um... So yeah, it just depends on the prayer. Number 17 from Jonatus uh, Praxedes says, what do I do if I'm thinking about marrying a Catholic girl, myself being Protestant? She has no problems with my faith, but once our son's baptized since she and her whole family is Catholic. Uh, Jonatus, I do not know your situation, the girl, all that stuff. What I'm gonna suggest is <clears throat> this problem, I'm gonna tell you from, this is a life experience thing, okay? It will just get worse and worse the older your kids get. Um, I just want them baptized, okay? But but they also have to have their first communion, and they need confirmation, so they have to go to they have to get catechized, you know. And there's all these things. I've I've just recently watched this happen with with uh, somebody I know, and the grandmother really wants to baptize in the Catholic Church their baby, and they're like, we're not Catholic, you know. And it became like a real point of contention, like a real point of contention your future wife would have not only her own pressure to baptize, she would have heavy pressure most likely from her parents as well to baptize in the Catholic Church according to the Catholic rituals. Um, and there's a requirement there on you as well um, to do that baptism. So is it a good idea in general for a Catholic and Protestant to get married? No. Not if they're people of conviction. I mean, if you have a Catholic who's like barely Catholic, like I don't even know what to call you then. I don't know what you really believe or what you are. But if you have a Catholic who actually, like if I was a Catholic, I'd be a real Catholic. I'd be pushing that Catholicism. I'd be telling you all to become Catholic. Right? I, I think that it's not true. So I'm Protestant, which means I follow Jesus in the Bible, but I don't think the Catholic Church has the authority it has. It claims to have, excuse me. Um, and so... This is going to be an increased issue in your guy's life. Just um, You can just expect it. It's already come up now. It's going to continue to come up. What if you really love this girl? Um, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> in general, there's going to be major problems you guys are going to have ahead, and they're going to be some of the biggest problems you could have because they're about the spiritual life of your children. That's something really serious to consider. So I'm not trying to hurt you guys, but those are my, my thoughts since you asked. For my opinion um 
if you're a Catholic of conviction and a Protestant of conviction, genuine, like serious people, then it, it seems like you're courting major, major issues in your life and your kids' lives. It'll be inevitable. Um, all right. Sorry. Sorry to ruin your day. Number 18, Jenna S. said, would you say that every theophany is a Christophany? Um, so a theophany, for anybody who doesn't know, is a time in the Old Testament where God like sort of shows up. Like, and I don't mean shows up in a metaphor sense, like um, his, like say the plagues on Egypt, those aren't a theophany. God, like you could say he shows up as a metaphor, but I mean like um, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And, and it says that God like covered him with his hand and he went past him and then let him see his back. Okay. Well, he covered him with his hand. So maybe we're not looking at like a literal hand, but there's some kind of showing up going on. God's presence is very manifest. That's like a theophany, an appearance of God, right? Theo meaning God and funny, like, you know, he was seen. And the uh, answer is, do I think every theophany is a Christophany? Um, I think I would say every time we see, quote, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that we have a Christophany. And I, and I lean towards thinking other theophanies are probably Christ. And we have good evidence for this in, like, say, the burning bush passage, which seems to have clearly been... Um, uh, Jesus himself in the, in the, in a burning bush. So what I would recommend is you check out my series called Jesus in the old Testament or how to find Jesus in the old Testament. Tons of videos I've got on that. I'll put up an in screen on the screen here later on at the very end of this video for people who are interested. And I'll put it in the comments or in the, um, not the comments, but the video description below as well. But this series, Jesus in the Old Testament, is entirely that. It's looking for not just theophanies, but pictures of Christ. But I have a couple, three videos, I think, that deal with theophany type stuff. So, um, yeah. Um, you, you gave a host of verses, but one, two, three, four, five verses from five books of the Bible. So, just for the sake of time, I won't look at all of those. There's my opinion on that. On that. Number 19, J.V. Lint says, 1 Corinthians 16.22 implies... We can't be saved if we don't love God. As I don't know how you can be saved and cursed at the same time, what advice would you give to someone who lacks affection for God? 1 Corinthians 16.22. I think I've got an answer for you. Let's look at this passage, though. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. So, um, you don't love Jesus, let you know, let him be accursed. And... and this is a term meaning like, out, yeah, unsaved. It's, I think it means let him be unsaved. Let him be apart from the gospel of Christ. Jesus is the door. You don't love the door. You don't want the door. You don't like the door. You don't get the salvation that he brings. Um, so then your question and why this becomes a challenge for you is because perhaps you're like, maybe it's you, maybe it's somebody else that you know who says, I, I just feel like I lack this affection for God. What I'm going to suggest is 1 Corinthians 13, it, it, it helps us to see that love is not affection. See, in the West and in, in modern times, especially with love songs and movies, I do think love songs, movies, and TV shows have really helped shape our understanding of relationships in negative ways. And it's caused us to think of them as primarily emotion-based, right? It's about emotional highs. I'm not saying those don't happen, but that's not what it's about. So 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging symbol. If I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So love is 
key. It's super important as it says at the end of 1 Corinthians. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 13. But lest you misunderstand and think love means emotional feels, he says love is and then defines it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Yet people, when they're full of emotional feels, they'll often be envious and boastful. They'll often be arrogant and rude when they're just sort of high on lovey feelings. But those are the feelings, not the love. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So these, this description of love doesn't involve love fills your heart with joy. Like, it, no, I mean, no, it doesn't quite say that. It describes love as an attitude and behaviors. When you take that attitude and behaviors and you apply it to Jesus, I think you discover that loving Jesus is about an attitude of I, I adore him. I'm grateful to him for the kindness he's given to me, the grace he's given to me, and he is my Lord and my Savior. I love him because I I, my allegiance is to him. So sometimes with my wife, I love her out of pure, just love without the feels. I think those are the best moments of our marriage. I mean, at least the best in the sense of me showing genuine love when there's no feeling in it and I'm just loving her on purpose and vice versa. When she does that for me, when she's thinking I'm irritated or frustrated or whatever, you know, he's. He made a mess and didn't clean it up and didn't even notice it <laughs> or whatever I did. And um, and she still acts gracious and patient and loving to me. To me, that's the, the pinnacle of love is those moments. And so God, he demonstrates his love for you in that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. This isn't just about feels. This is about commitment. There you go. Do you love Jesus? Well, are you committed to him? Well, yes, I'm committed to him. You're genuinely, you trust in him? Yeah, I trust in him. You, he's your Lord and Savior? Yeah. You're grateful? Yeah, I'm grateful. I just don't have the feels all the time. Oh, well, that's just movies and music that made you feel like you'd have those all the time. And guess what? The people who wrote those movies, acted in them, and who wrote the music and performed it, they don't have those feels all the time either. <laughs> so it's just a big, it's just a big joke. All right. This is question 20. I know this is like a short, believe it or not, if you're new, this is a shorter live stream we're doing today. And part of it's because I, I, I know my brain juices are low and I did not sleep enough for the past while. So question 20, someone, the person has a question, says, uh, Hebrews eleven thirty one says that Rahab's faith saved her. Yet Joshua 2 verses 4 through 6 shows Rahab lying about the Israelite spies. Then a third verse comes up. Romans 3 verses 7 and 8 condemns good from evil. How do we reconcile this, Pastor Mike? Um, let's start with the Romans passage. Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. Is Rahab uh, being commended for doing evil? I think it's kind of what we're, what we're getting at. Um, if through, God, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I was actually just reading this today um, earlier. So I, I woke up at like five this morning. I couldn't sleep. And uh, so I got like five hours of work done before <laughs> before like I just was depleted. And I was reading this to prepare for a video response I'm going to be doing uh, pretty soon. Well, within the next few weeks to somebody. I'll tell you all about it later. But um, at any rate, the concept here is that Paul's actually saying um, some people are suggesting that um, that 
hey, if my sinfulness, if my behaving in sin gives God a chance to be glorified by judging me, how about I just do more sin so that his truth can be revealed more? And, and he's saying, that's that's foolish. That's foolish. Um, you, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, maybe Romans 3 applies to Rahab, who lied in order to save the Israelites from being killed. Now, different people are going to answer this very differently. So what I'm about to share with you guys is very much Mike Winger's opinion. This is a bit controversial. I don't think that Rahab did wrong when she misled, lied to the people who were coming and hunting the Israelites. I think that in this situation, it's one of those rare situations where human life, protecting human life against wrongful killing, it was justified. So let me give you an example. The, the old... Um, like Corey Ten Boom example, right? Like say you're in Nazi Germany and you're a German citizen and you have a, a Jew in your home who's hiding and the Nazis, in this hypothetical, the Nazis come to your door and they knock. Is so-and-so here? And you know that if you say, yes, they're here, they're going to take them away and kill them. But you also feel torn because you don't want to lie because you know that lying is wrong. I think this is <clears throat> the exception to the rule. Lying is wrong, but here's the exception. And the reason why it would be Partly because betraying this person to their un, to their wrongful death. Catch this. When you tell the truth, they're here. You're not just, I just was honest. You're actually betraying someone under your protection to their wrongful death. That's a situation where I think, yeah. like, And, and you can push this a little harder to make it feel a little stronger. Um, you can go to the passage and see that she's commended in Hebrews. Um, specifically for sending them out the other way. Let's let's look at the passage. Uh, Hebrews eleven thirty one. It says, "By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she has had given a friendly welcome to the spies." Um, and then, uh, oh man, where's the passage where it says that she sent them out the other way? Um, uh, if I wasn't so tired, I'd probably uh, James two twenty five. <clears throat> Um, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, which means seen by people to have genuine faith. I'll skip the long explanation. That's what that is referring to, justified in the eyes of people horizontally, that she her faith was genuine. When? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So she helped hide them. Now, it doesn't specifically mention that she misled, but the implication is that hiding them and sending them out safely in another direction, that this was all laudable and good. And I think, it, I think it was. I think that she was betraying them to an unjust killing, to a wrongful killing. And I can give you other examples. Someone breaks into your house, and they come. And this is a, a strange example, but just to grant the hypothetical, so you can see my point, and disagree with me if you want, that's fine. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. This is how I understand these, this scripture on this passage, and it's secondary, but I, I think it's true. Um, <clears throat> someone comes to your door, they break in. And your family, your children are hiding in the room. And they yell out, be honest, is anyone here? But if you answer me yes, I will kill whoever's here. And so you remain silent. And you know your silence is misleading. Because they asked you to tell them the truth if you were there. and you re But you remain silent. It, you're being deceptive. In a sense, but this is the exception to the rule. This is this is protecting other people. Yeah, it's deceptive, but deceptive to prevent a murderer from murdering. That this is the exception to the rule. Now, others will say, "Oh, well, Mike just thinks lying is okay." I'm like, "Well, you don't obviously care about what I say. <laughs> you just want to find something to complain about. Have at it." Um, 
I, I, oddly enough, recently I've been noticing this. I hear people say things that I say. I, I commented on some video recently where someone was like, Mike Winger says he likes to sit back and drink some wine to relax in the evening. And I was like, I've never done that <laughs> ever. And so is, and I've never said that. And so I thought that was um, the things people say that I said. Um, so I do think that Rahab presents us with the exception of the rule that that she's she's done something good. I'm doing a bit of guesswork, admittedly, because the text never says in the Bible, Rahab did the right thing by lying to the guards. But it implies the whole story was the right thing. That's implied that's there. So that, um, yeah, there's my two cents. Good to, good to end on a controversial note. I'm closing down our, our Q&A for today. Thank you guys so much for joining. I appreciate you being here to not just hear me ramble, although I, being in my sleepy stupor, I did some of that, but, um, but to think through these things and try to arrive at a biblical conclusion where you say, hey, I can't just say it. Like I've got to have scripture to support it. And if I don't, then I should hold it very loosely. Letting the word of God be the guide for the people of God. That's what we need. So, Lord bless you guys. I will put up a new video um, Monday, another clip from my big thing I did with Alan Parr a while back, and I'm loading it on my channel, talking about um, different cult groups. I think JW's is the one that's coming up this Monday. So, thank you. Thank you to the mods for being there. You guys have a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed. <laughs>